Hello, hello, hello. What a blessing and honor for each of you to join us on this special day for the Hour of Excellence. The theme is, it's about our children, our outstanding dignitaries who are destined for greatness. Let's continue to love and pray for our children because they are truly someone special. Please enjoy today's presentation. We have a special guest, young outstanding dignitary Alonzo Brinson from Lake City, Florida, also known as Dr. AJ. He will be doing a three-part series on fighting temptation. Today, you will hear the first part. Dr. AJ is a 2023 graduate of Columbia High School in Lake City, Florida. He will be attending Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia in the fall. Dr. AJ, the mic is yours. As many of you know, we live in a world full of temptation. Whether it's temptation on the job or temptation at school or even Temptation at home. Temptation surrounds us every day and everywhere. I accepted Jesus Christ at a very early age. And there are three verses in the Bible that every believer needs to have in order to deal with temptation. I can count on the number of times I've had to refer back to those verses until now they're forever locked in the memory bank of my mind. From time to time, my brothers and sisters, we've all come to Temptation's Corner, that place where we are called to make a decision as to which way to turn, whether to do right or to do wrong, whether to do good or bad. The tempter, Satan, stands there at every intersection trying to get us to make the wrong turn. And there are three questions that we have to ask ourselves when we come to this intersection of life. The first question we need to ask ourselves is if you have a pen or paper or just open up your notes on your phone is, can you thank God for it? When we find ourselves in temptation's corner, we should ask ourselves, if, if I go this way, if I go to this club, if I go to this party, if I say this thing right here, if I do this deed when it's all said and done, can I thank God for it? There are answers to these questions all around the Bible, so excuse me as I Bible hop, but 1 Thessalonians 5 and 18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. In everything, give thanks. The most important, the most important part of that verse is, in everything, give thanks. We were born to give God thanks. If there is an action or an attitude on our part that we cannot thank God for in the aftermath, then we should avoid it at all costs. Because in the Word, it does not say give thanks to all things, but give thanks in all things. So watch this. If I can't thank God for it, then I shouldn't do it. If I can't thank God for it, then I shouldn't go there. If I if the reason we should ask ourselves when temptation comes, when we get in temptation's corner, can I thank God for it? Is because if we can't thank God for it, then we shouldn't do it. Smoking weed, can I thank God for it? Drinking alcohol, can I thank God for it? 
And there are some people that you can't even thank God for because they mean you no good. So we have to ask ourselves, if I can't, if I can, if I can't thank God for it, then I can't do it. I'll give you an example, and then I'll give you the second question. When I was in the store, I was looking at a razor. A razor, it, it helps keep your head smooth, your beard smooth, your walk smooth. But while I was looking at the razor, God spoke to me because the Lord said to me, in order for things to go smoothly, you have to cut some things out. In order for things to go smoothly, there might be some people you have to cut. In order for your marriage to go smoothly, there might be some things you have to cut. In order for your finances to go smoothly, there might be some things you have to cut. And if you can't thank God for it, then you got to cut it out. God, I can hear if you if you just tell yourself, God, I want to cut it out. The reason why things are not going so smoothly for some of you is because you haven't made some necessary cuts. If you want your education to go smoothly, you need to make some cuts. If you want your job to go smoothly, your life to go smoothly, your marriage to go smoothly, you have to make some cuts. Proverbs 13 and 20 says, walk with the wise and become wise for a companion of fools suffer harm. In other words, you need to check your crew because this might be why you're suffering harm because you have made no cut. Do you know what you want to know what a real friend is? A real friend is someone who motivates you to do more in life. A real friend brings out the best in you. A real friend, you're a better person because of them. If they don't bring out the best in you and you're not a better person because of them, and if they don't motivate you to do more in life, you need to cut them. That's not a real friend. That's what I call a hangaround. Here's an example. Here's an example, and then I give you the second question. There was a girl who went to the hospital because she was coughing a lot, and she asked the doctor why she was coughing. She couldn't figure out what was wrong. Her body was in so much pain. They ran tests, and it came back that she had lung cancer. And she, tr she tried to deny it. She said, I don't smoke. I never smoked a day in my life. The doctor said, well, is there anybody around you that smokes? She said, yes, my husband He's been smoking for years, and the doctor looked at her and pointed at her and said, that's how you got it. You don't have to smoke. You just have to be around it. His bad habit harmed her. God is saying something to me right here. Some of y'all are wondering why you're suffering right now because of the environment you're in and who you are connected to. Other folks' bad habits can cause you to suffer. In preparation, I'm about to leave for college where I'm going up to Atlanta, Morehouse College, I've been hearing almost the same thing from God. There's some cuts that I have to make. Proverbs 27 and 6 says, Wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an enemy multiplies kisses. A real friend will tell you the truth, and the truth will set you free. A real friend is like a doctor. They cut you so they can see you get better. They want to see you get stronger. Some people are cutting to kill you, but a real friend is like a doctor. They're cutting to heal you, not kill you. And brothers and sisters, you need somebody in your life that's going to tell you the truth because they want to see you do better. They want to see you reach your goals. Proverbs 27 verse 17 says, iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. Run with people that will make you sharper that will make you better. And then ask yourself at the end, 
Are you a good person because of them? Are you a good boyfriend because of them? Are you a good girlfriend because of them? Are you a good husband because of them? Are you a good wife because of them? Are you a good father because of them? Are you a good mother because of him? That's why, that's why you have to ask, can I thank God for them first? 1 Corinthians 15 and 33 says, Does not be, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. I'll say it again. Bad company corrupts good character. When you get to your Bible, just go and underline that verse and put it in your memory box. 2 Corinthians 6 and 17 says, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. In some places that you're not, you, you ought to not even try to be at no more. You have to be separate. Nowadays, they're lacing anything, weed, alcohol, drinks, drinks of regular money. They'll just lace it and kill you and take you out. you got to come out of that phase of your life. If you're going to be who God called you to be, you have to come out from under them. God is calling you out. Wherever you're listening to that, you ought to just say to yourself, God is calling me out. You ought to just say that. There's a little example. You never put other fish in the same tank as a goldfish. What do you mean by that? I'm glad to ask. When you put other fishes in with the goldfish, they will die. How do you know that? Well, because the place from the goldfish is so toxic. And his mess will kill the other fishes. I'm preaching, y'all ain't saying nothing. His mess is killing the other fishes. His mess is causing them not to survive. Now, my question to you is, who is the goldfish in your life? Who is taking your joy? Who is bringing you down? There's a group of goldfish in your life that's killing your peace. Come out of it. Because they mess is going to kill you. It's going to kill your family. It's going to kill your marriage. It's going to kill your education. Just tell yourself, get rid of the goldfish. Because there ain't nothing gold about it. So the first question you have to ask yourself when you come to Temptations Corner is, can I thank God for it? And can I thank God for them? If not, you got to make some cuts. The second question you have to ask yourself is can I do it in Jesus' name? Colossians 3 and 17 says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do, whatever you do at work, whatever you do at school, whatever you do at home, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of Jesus. We are not only called to give thanks for all things, but to do all things in the name of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine if the, differ the difference that would make in your life if you took that verse seriously? Can you imagine what difference will come in your life if you just took that first verse seriously? It would make a huge difference of what came out your mouth. Can I say it in the name of Jesus? It will make a huge difference of where you go. Can I go there in the name of Jesus? Y'all ain't praying with me. It will make a huge difference in what you do. Can I do this in the name of Jesus? If I can't do it in the name of Jesus, I just can't do it. 
If I can't go there in the name of Jesus, I'm just not going. When temptation comes to your corner, you need to ask yourself, when faced with a decision, can I do it in the name of Jesus? I'll even go deeper. I'll even go deeper. Some of y'all don't want to be real with yourself. I'll even go deeper. And I'm just talking about me. Can I sleep with her in the name of Jesus? Can I be with him or her in the name of Jesus? Can I smoke this in the name of Jesus? Can I drink this in the name of Jesus? If I can't do it in the name of Jesus, I just can't do it. And you see, the crazy thing is, God is crazy about his name. You got to read Exodus 20 and 7. It says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuse his name. What is what is it about God's name? You see, a lot of times when we use God's name, we use it in a time of doing wrong. And God is crazy about his name. You see, the Jews were such in all about God's name, Yahweh, that they refused to speak the name in public because they took his name so seriously. They wouldn't even say it or speak it in public. Look how we are living in 2023, doing wrong and calling his name. You would think... You would stop because you're using his name, but you still use it in vain. Some of y'all say G and then D-A-M-N. Then try to cover up and say, I said God. No, baby, you said God. Then you say God leave or oh my God. No, don't say that. Don't use God's name in vain. That's God's name you're talking about. You have to have his name and you, you have to respect God's name. You know, if you're a Christian, you have God's name. Because you can't spell Christian without spelling Christ. So how you are acting is using his name in vain. So that's why you have to ask ourselves, that's why we have to ask ourselves, can I do it in his name? There was a fighter by the name of Alexander. He was a fighter in the war, and Alexander's while going to war, saw a young fighter when they were about to face battle going the other way. Alexander quickly turned his horse around and went and stopped the young fighter and asked him, the soldier, where are you going? What's your name? The soldier looked at him and said, my name is Alexander, just like you. My mom named me after you. And Alexander looked at him and said, and you're going this way? When the battle is that way, he said, look here, son, either change your name or change your direction. You're, gonna, you're not going to have my name going in the opposite direction of where I told you to go. Either change your name or change your direction. And I hear God telling us today that either change your name or change your direction. Either change your name or change your walk. So that's why we have to remember before we do something, we have to ask ourselves, can I do it in his name? If I can't do it in his name, then I just can't do it. The last question you have to ask yourself, and I'm done for the day, is can I do it for God's glory? Can I do it for God's glory? 1 Corinthians 10 and 31 says, so whether you eat, or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. 
What does that mean? So that doctor's degree, you ought to just say to God be the glory. That RN, that LPN, you just say to God be the glory. Whatever you do, you have to do it for the glory of God. See, as a true believer, a true believer is motivated by the desire to bring God glory. Y'all missed that. Let me say it one more time. A true believer is motivated by the desire to bring God's glory. So we have to ask ourselves, is this going to bring God glory? You know, when kids are performing, whether it's on the court, football field, baseball mound, in the classroom, anywhere, it's mainly for their parents. Every time they score, every time they make a good grade on a test, every time they, they, they make a good play, they usually seek the attention of their parents. Whether they're pointing up in the crowd or, or, or bringing it to you, they, they, you know how it is. They usually are seeking the attention of their parents. And as Christians, we should all look at that, and we should do the same thing for God. Every time we do something good, is it giving God glory? That's why, that's why, how is this going to get God's glory? If I go here, if I'm seen here, how is God going to get the glory? Wherever you go, that's what you should ask yourself. While I'm going here, is God going to get the glory? That's why when you go somewhere, you see people all the time wearing the WWJD bracelet. But if they're going to a specific place, I ain't going to name it. Y'all know what I'm talking about. They'll take it off. Or when you see people messing around, you see, you'll mess around and take off your wedding ring. Why? Because it shows you're committed to somebody else. And you don't want that to be seen. They don't want to see you committed to your marriage. I'm preaching. Y'all ain't saying nothing to me. And see, that's what your life should be like. Your life should be like a wedding ring, letting people know that I'm committed to God. And you know what? Glory means it means to put God on his plaque or his pedestal and to praise God. That's why when you leave the house, y'all remember your mama would say they will be right out. And she'll give you that speech or that lecture. She'll start off by saying, y'all, come here now. I'm trusting y'all to go out. But don't let me hear something that's going to embarrass me. Y'all remember those talks. I can hear God telling us today, y'all, come here now. Y'all represent me out here. Make sure whatever you do that the light is reflecting and shining back on me. Make sure people see that the works that I'm doing in your life, when you come to temptation corner, you ought to just stop. First Corinthians says, First Corinthians 10 and 13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. That's why Jesus taught us the prayer, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And then he said, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us for evil, from evil. In other words, we cannot deliver ourselves. We need Jesus to deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. 
That's why when I pray for, for, for the Lord, when I pray, ask the Lord to lead me not into temptation. You see, Satan, he wants you to fall into temptation. So when you come to that intersection of life, when you have to make a decision, and in temptation's corner, you're there, you've got to ask yourself, can I thank God for it? Can I do it in Jesus' name? And can God get the glory? And if he can't get the glory out of this, and if he can't get the praise out of this, I just can't do it. But if you do fall in the temptation's corner, and you don't know where to go, oh, I don't got happy. There's a man that you can call on. His name is Jesus. He was born in Bethlehem. He was reared in Nazareth, baptized in the Jordan, performed miracles in Galilee. He wept over Jerusalem and prayed in Gethsemane. And one Friday evening went up a hill called Calvary. And he died for the sins of the world. He died for your sins. He died for my sins. He died until the earth reeled and rocked like a drunken man. He died until he got into the head of a centurion, and he made the centurion cry out, Surely, this man is the Son of God. But early Sunday morning, before the dewdrops dropped out of the nighttime sky, before the sun lit up the world, he got up with all power in his hand. And the best part about that power is the same power that raised Jesus. It also dwells in you. This temptation, you can stop it. When you come to temptation's corner, just stop and think about that man, that man that saved you and saved me. This has been part one of how to handle temptation with A.J. Brinson. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next week.
the civil rights foot soldiers. The civil rights foot soldiers were brave and determined individuals who played a pivotal role in the civil rights movement in the United States during the 1950s and 1960s. They were ordinary people, including children, teenagers, and adults who took a stand against racial segregation and discrimination in America. These courageous activists participated in peaceful protests, sit-ins, and marches to demand equal rights and justice for African Americans and other people of color. The young foot soldiers faced immense challenges, including violence, arrest, and intimidation, but they remained steadfast in their pursuit of equality. Their actions had a profound impact, leading to the passage of significant civil rights legislation, such as the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Today, we remember the bravery and sacrifice of these foot soldiers as we continue to fight for equality and justice in our society. Their legacy serves as a reminder that no matter our age, we can use our voices and actions to make a difference and create a world where everyone is treated with kindness, respect, and fairness. Foot soldiers are the young people that were involved in the movement. These are folks that will never get their name in history books, but without them, this wouldn't have worked. The foot soldiers were the ones on the ground of the civil rights movement. They were that army of people who marched, who were beaten by the policemen who had to take the water hose attacks, who were bitten by the dogs, who were put in jail, and some were even killed. These people are American history heroes, and they live right next to us. Growing up in the city of Birmingham, we experienced firsthand what it was like to be black. Okay, I felt like if I could make a difference, I was willing to do that because at that particular time, I was just one fed up little black girl. I really was, so I was ready to go. I was motivated to go. My father carried all of us to the Monday night mass meetings, which consist of singing and clapping and motivational speakers telling you to get involved. And I just turned 18. Is you old enough to make your own decisions? Whatever you do, we'll live by it. And that's all I needed. I got permission from my mother, and my brother and I walked to our first mass meeting. And it was in that mass meeting that I met James Bevel. He said, how many electric typewriters do you have at your school? I said, we have one, but I get to type on it because I'm a good typist. He said, did you know at Phillips High School, which was an all-white school, they have three rooms of electric typewriters? I thought, what? first reality check. When James Bevel decided that they should use the children, I was told Reverend Martin Luther King at first didn't want to do that. But as he kept on and kept on talking about it, they decided that it was safer to use the children because they didn't have a job to lose. He said, if you want to do something about this, you can. Your parents can't, but you really don't have anything to lose. And I agreed with him. And that's what got me going. James Bevel helped him understand, listen, you're being discriminated against because of who you are. 
And then when the kid's like, yeah, you're right, I want to be a part of this, you got to go through a training session. We attended uh, student nonviolent workshops. We would meet sometimes at 16th Street in the basement, and the different ministers would talk to us. They basically told us that if you get involved, you got to be nonviolent. If somebody calls you a name, they hit you, even if they spit on you, you could bow your head, cover your head, but do not strike back. They're going to simulate things at the training session. So I'm smacking you in the head and I'm pushing you, you know, I'm blowing smoke in your face. But if you can take it, then you can make it outside. I was 16 and I was arrested. It wasn't a proud thing back in 1963 to come out and brag about, I went to jail because I marched for civil rights. No one respected a jailbird, so those foot soldiers ended up keeping a lot of that inside, not to be ridiculed by the people that thought it was degrading to go to jail. Kids were in jail for some cases four to five days. Imagine being in a jail cell for four or five days and you're in there packed like sardines with 38, 39 other kids. I mean, these kids weren't, they're not soldiers for real, but they were fighting a war for their freedom. They were willing to do it in spite of what could potentially happen to them. I know foot soldiers that cannot walk through the statue with the three dogs in Killing Park because they remember what it was like to get bit. So they just refuse to go in there. Honoring the foot soldiers. Civil rights activist Barbara Vickers discusses the foot soldiers of the civil rights movement and building a monument to honor them. So when um, Dr. Halen said that he needed the people, Dr. King was sitting there and I was just a couple of rows from him. And he just looked at me and he said, young lady, will you go? And looked like, Everything in here start ticking, and I said yes. And that's when I began to do it. I wanted to go to the rallies. I think I attended most all of them. And I was stopped so many times on my way home. The policeman said, do you have any weapons? I said, no. So he goes in the trunk, had me to open the trunk, and he got the lug wrench that you change the tire with. He says, you do have weapons. So he said, I could take you to jail for this. They're doing all of this. I never went to jail. I said I wasn't going anymore. I said that all through the movement. When things would happen, I said, this is my last night. But I couldn't stay home because that was the first time that I felt that there would be a change. I felt that, that there would be a change if we continue. So I wanted to be one of the ones that would make a difference. So I went. Now my grandmother on my mother's side, she was horrified. She said, why don't they stop? They're not going to get these things that they want. They're not, the white people are not going to let them eat with them. And I said, we don't want to eat with them. We want to be allowed to go into the restaurant and order our dinner like anybody else. That's all we want. And she says, but you just better stop. You're going to get yourself killed. And she would tell me frightening stories of her days where they would go to black homes and pull a black man out, and you see him hanging on the tree the next time. So she has had a, a, an experience that I, I didn't know about, you know. 
and she just couldn't believe that there would be a better day. The foot soldiers were the people who marched and took part into the struggle that we had here in St. Louis. Well, when the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was signed, the people stayed here a little while, and they left. So we were here almost high and dry. Daily, I would look at those people who had lost their jobs and had kids to feed and whatnot. Some of the people never looked the same to me. They, you know, they just felt drained, looked drained. And it just kept rolling and rolling over in my head. Something should be done to recognize these people. When I wanted to do the monument, I talked to different people. They said, well, maybe the city would go along with you if it's Dr. King. Maybe you could put Dr. King. I said, but it's not about Dr. King. It's about the little people who made Dr. King. And I just kept thinking about it and thinking about it. And my grandson says, well, when are you going to stop? When are you going to leave it alone? And I said, when I get that monument downtown in the plaza, it'll be over for me. So I um, called in several people and organized a group. And our first donation was $7. And we, we did it. And Nina Vreeland, she came through so generous. She gave me $20,000. And when she did that, it looked like people started kicking in and figured, well, this is a worthwhile cause. Because she didn't know whether we were going to get there, or continue, or what. But um, we did. You think it's over? No way. Mm-mm. No. I mean, you feel bad if you don't do what you can do. Now, if it was something impossible, or oh, I couldn't do this, and at my age, I need to go sit down, but... I just feel like I need to help any way I can. What can we learn from the civil rights foot soldiers? First, we can learn that age does not limit us from making a difference. No matter how young you are, your voices matter and you can bring about change. Second, we learn the power of peaceful protests. By using our words instead of violence, we can create positive change and inspire others to join the cause. Lastly, the civil rights foot soldiers teach us about standing up for what is right, even when it's not easy. They faced adversity, but remain strong and committed to their beliefs. How can we carry on their legacy? Here are some ideas for you to become foot soldiers for justice in your own way. Number one, educate yourself and others about civil rights and social issues. Knowledge is power. Number two, speak up against injustice when you see it. Use your voice to spread awareness. Number three, be kind and inclusive. Treat others with respect and embrace diversity. 
Number four, get involved in community service or peaceful protests for causes you care about. We Shall Overcome is a powerful and iconic anthem that emerged during the civil rights movement in the United States. The song originated from African-American spirituals and gospel music symbolizing the resilience, hope, and determination of those who fought for racial inequality and justice. The lyrics of We Shall Overcome speak of overcoming adversity, standing united against oppression, and striving for a better future. The song's popularity grew during the 1960s when it became the unofficial anthem of the civil rights movement. It was sung by activists during protests, marches, and demonstrations. Throughout the years, We Shall Overcome has transcended its historical context and become a global symbol of hope and resistance against various forms of injustice and discrimination. It remains a powerful reminder of the indomitable human spirit and the ongoing fight for equality and human rights worldwide. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. No, I join hands so often with students and others behind jail bars singing it. We shall overcome. Sometimes we've had tears in our eyes when we joined together to sing it, but we still decided to sing it. We shall overcome. No, before this victory is won, some will have to get thrown in jail some more, but we shall overcome. Don't worry about us. Before the victory is won, some of us will lose jobs, but we shall overcome. Before the victory is won, even some will have to face physical death. The physical death is the price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent psychological death. Then nothing shall be more redemptive. We shall overcome. Before the victory is won, some will be misunderstood and called bad names and dismissed as rabble-rousers and agitators. But we shall overcome. And I'll tell you why. We shall overcome because the arc of the moral universe is long but it bends toward justice. We shall overcome because Carlisle is right. No lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryant is right. Truth crushed to earth will rise again. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. We shall overcome because the Bible is right. You shall reap what you sow. We shall overcome. Deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome. And with this faith, we will go out and adjourn the councils of despair and bring new light into the dark chambers of pessimism. And we will be able to rise 
from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope. And this will be a great America. We will be the participants in making it so. And so as I leave you this evening, I say, walk together, children. Don't you get weary. There's a great camp meeting in the town. We shall by Christopher Eliopoulos. I am Martin Luther King Jr. When I was little, I used to get into a lot of accidents. One day, my little brother hit me in the head with a baseball bat. Two other times, I mistakenly got knocked over by a car. Another day, I tumbled over our banister, then bounced through an open door into the basement. No matter how many times I fell, I kept getting back up. Whoa, amazing fall. You okay? I'm okay. Even before I could read, I knew I liked books. My dad always talked about how I kept a lot of books around me. I used to tell my parents, when I grow up, I'm going to get me some big words. There is a power in words. Big words were in my future. When I was six years old, One of my best friends was a boy whose father owned a store across the street. My friend was white. I was black. It didn't matter to us. We would play games and have fun together. Tag, you're it. No, you're it. No, you're it. No, you're it. But when we started going to school, everything changed. He went to a school where all the kids were white. I went to a school where everyone was black. Soon after, he told me, I can't play with you anymore. Why? My dad said so. He doesn't want us being friends. But why? You're one of my best friends, aren't you? 
I didn't understand. It didn't make any sense. Aren't you? At dinner, my parents explained, "It's because you're black and he's white." I was so mad that day. How could someone treat me differently just because of the color of my skin? I wanted to hate my friend and his father, but my parents told me to do the opposite. That I should love my friend, even though he hurt me. They taught me that it's better to have more love in your life than more hate. Then my mother taught me one of the most important lessons of all: you are as good as anyone. You must never feel that you are less than anyone else. I wanted to believe it, but every day I saw the opposite. I saw you could be treated unfairly just because of the color of your skin. If you were white. You went to a good school with great playgrounds and plenty of books. But if you were black, your school was small, sometimes with no desks or even windows. Check it out—a playground. Check it out. Where's our playground? It wasn't just the schools. Black people had to use different water fountains, different elevators, even different bathrooms. In fact, on a hot day when everyone wanted ice cream, if you were white. You could sit at the counter and eat from a nice dish, but since I was black, if they served me at all, it was all through a side window, and they put my ice cream in a flimsy paper cup. This ice cream is perfect. This ice cream is melted. It got even worse when I was fourteen. I had just won a speech competition. My speech was about being fair to all people. I was so excited. Then, on the bus ride home, a few white people got on board. You need to give up your seats to the whites. At first, I stayed put. It didn't seem fair, but my teacher convinced me to move. We spent the rest of the ride standing and getting tossed in every direction. It was the angriest I've ever been. Every day, this is what life was like. Black people were treated terribly. The only question was, what could I do about it? At the age of fifteen, I started college. By nineteen, I became a minister and entered seminary school to study religion. Over those years, I read the works of Henry David Thoreau and Mahatma Gandhi. Thoreau taught me about civil disobedience, how an evil system could be changed without violence. Gandhi opened my mind to the power of nonviolence resistance. What's that? Love. It's using love and peaceful methods to change unfair things in society. It was a lesson I wanted to share with everyone. In no time at all, I got my chance. In Alabama, a black woman named Rosa Parks was told to give up her seat to a white man. It was just like what happened to me. But unlike me, Mrs. Parks refused. She was arrested. Early the next morning, I got a phone call from a local community leader. It's time to take a stand. We should boycott the buses so everyone knows that we won't accept this treatment anymore. You know that's not going to be easy. Do not ask if it's easy. Ask if it's right. It was just like the road taught. Instead of using violence to protest the unfair rules, black people would use a peaceful method. We would not ride the public buses. Without our money, the bus companies would go out of business. Now the only question was, would it work? On the first day of the protest, my wife called me to the window. The buses are all empty. It's working. We had to keep it going. As the head of the bus boycott, I gave one of the most important speeches of my life. The room was packed. 
camera crews were filming. I only had 20 minutes to prepare. I didn't use notes, but by speaking from my heart, I found out how big words can be. We are determined here in Montgomery to work and fight until justice runs down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. When the history books are written in the future, somebody will have to say there lived a race of people, a black people, who had the moral courage to stand up for their rights. The police put me in jail, saying I was breaking the law. Other folks bombed my house, but instead of using my fists, I kept my calm. Don't you want to fight back? I am a man of nonviolence, and I know that I do not stand alone. We are with you all the way, Reverend. If no one rides these buses, we'll go out of business. You're finally getting that, huh? For more than a full year, every black person in the city, and some white people too, refused to ride the buses. That meant some people had to walk for miles, but they kept going. There was a power in standing together. Eventually, only a peaceful protest worked. The rules were changed. Public buses could no longer separate people based on the color of their skin. That was only the beginning. Soon, our peaceful protests sparked other peaceful protests. At lunch counters, college students organized sit-ins, where they would not stop until everyone could eat together. Our methods of nonviolence were so powerful, I was invited to meet with the president at the White House. But sometimes, the hardest problems were right at home. Daddy, look, an amusement park. Please, can we go? I'm sorry, Yoki. We can't. Funtown is not open to black people. Seeing my daughter cry was one of the most painful moments of my life. It only made me work harder for change. Was it easy? Absolutely not. During one protest in Birmingham, Alabama, the police again arrested me and locked me in a dark jail cell that had only one window. Someone slipped me a newspaper in which white religious leaders had written an article calling us lawbreakers. Someone then snuck me a pen. In that jail cell, I wrote my own response in the margins of the newspaper and even on toilet paper. My letter from Birmingham jail was soon published as a pamphlet. Then it was in magazines and newspapers. Today, it has been read by millions of people. Like I said, it is amazing how big words can be. Our message was so important. Even kids your age joined us. In Birmingham, during the Children's Crusade, more than 1,000 kids, some as young as six years old, showed up to march. What do you want? Feed them. The first day, the police arrested 900 of them. The next day, 2,500 children showed up ready to go to jail. This was our finest hour. Enraged that we were not giving up, the chief of police told the firemen to spray the children with water hoses and attack them with dogs. They thought it would stop us. But instead, as the whole country watched on TV what they were doing to our children, it was a wake-up call for the nation's conscience. How can they treat little kids like that? That's not right. We need to help them. Ninety days later, the rules began to change. Now blacks and whites in Birmingham were using the same lunch counters, water fountains, and restrooms. You could feel it in the air. More change was coming. Freedom was contagious. 
by the summer of 1963, an estimated one million Americans held their own protests in cities across the country. A man named A. Philip Randolph suggested a massive march. If we march together peacefully, they won't be able to ignore us. Together, we can convince Congress and the president to pass laws so that no one in America can treat people differently based on skin color. I like the idea. Where should we have it? There's only one place. People came from almost every state. They came in nearly every form of transportation. They even took off work and did not get paid just to be there. Old people, young people, black people, white people, even children like you. They all came to Washington, D.C., gathering in a righteous army. Why? Because they wanted a change, and they knew the surest way to change the world is to stand together. I am happy to join with you today in what will go down in history as the greatest demonstration for freedom in the history of our nation. On August 28, 1963, I stood at the podium and spoke with some later called my biggest words of all. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream that one day little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. Let freedom ring from every mountainside. Let freedom ring. After the march on Washington, the president and Congress passed new laws for civil rights, but that didn't mean our work was done. Indeed, our greatest battle was still to come. It began with 600 activists as they tried to walk 54 miles from Selma, Alabama to the state capital of Montgomery. Back then, there were rules that stopped black people from voting. If you want to change the laws, you have to be able to vote for new people who make the laws. We're marching to tell the governor, we want voting rights. This brutality must end. No matter what, don't let them pass. The police had billy clubs and tear gas. They attacked our group and knocked many people down. But as I learned so long ago, you have to get back up. No matter how hard they hit us, we remained peaceful. Still, we didn't get through. Two days later, we tried again. Now, there were 2,500 of us. We will get to Montgomery. No, you won't. I promise you won't. Once again, we tried. Once again, we did not get through. Did we give up? What do you think? It was Sunday, March 21st, 1965, our third try. Now we had 8,000 people with us. We are on the move. We shall overcome. For two days we marched. Rain could not stop us. The world was watching. The White House was too. President Johnson even sent troops to protect us. Check out the crowd. Black, white, Christian, Jewish, all standing together. Exhaustion could not stop us. As we reached Montgomery, Alabama, tears were shed, but this time they were tears of joy. In my life, people tried to tell me I wasn't as good as they were just because of the color of my skin. When someone hurts you like that, it can be tempting to hurt them back. You must refuse. 
When someone shows you hate, show them love. When someone shows you violence, show them kindness. To reach our goals, we must walk the path of peace. We must lock arms with our brothers and sisters. We must march together. When we do, our voices will be heard and freedom will ring. Remember Funtown Amusement Park? Its doors eventually opened to black people and Dr. King got to take his daughter. Did you know that he was the youngest person to win the Nobel Peace Prize at that time? Just 35 years old. He donated the prize money to the civil rights movement. He said that the prize was the work of many other unsung heroes. He fought against poverty too. There's even a national holiday for him, the third Monday of every January. Only Washington and Lincoln get a day like that and they share theirs. It's a day to remember how far we've come and how much more work there's left to do. I am Martin Luther King Jr. I stand for peace. I stand for justice. I stand to help others. I stand as proof that no matter how hard the struggle, we must fight for what is right and work to change what is wrong. Whatever struggle you face, no matter how hard it gets, you must always move forward. I am proof of this. If we rise up, if we stand together, if we remain united, nothing can stop our dream. Thank you for listening. In the words of Mrs. Bernice Presley, be blessed.